Thank you for listening to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care Podcast. The iCritical Care Podcast is copyrighted material and all rights are reserved. Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine or its officers or members. Your host is the Society's Associate Editor for Podcasts, Dr. Richard Savell. Dr. Savell is the Associate Director of the Surgical Intensive Care Unit at Maimonides Medical Center in Brooklyn, New York. He also is an Assistant Professor of Medicine at the Mount Sinai School of Medicine. To contact the editorial staff of the iCritical Care Podcast with questions, comments, or ideas, please email info at sccm.org. Hello and welcome to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care Podcast, recorded Monday, April 3rd, 2006. I'm your host, Dr. Richard Savell. In today's podcast, we will be speaking with Stanley Nazarway, MD, FCCM, about his article published in the April issue of Critical Care Medicine, entitled, Morbid Obesity is an Independent Determinant of Death Among Surgically Critically Ill Patients. The reference is Critical Care Medicine, 2006, Volume 34, Issue 4, page 964. Dr. Nazarway is an Associate Professor of Surgery, Medicine, and Anesthesia at Tufts University and is Chief of the Surgical Intensive Care Units at Tufts New England Medical Center in Boston, Massachusetts. His article addresses the growing number of morbidly obese patients entering the intensive care unit and suggests that customized processes be developed to address this unique and challenging patient population. Thank you so much, Stanley, for being with us today. Thank you very much for having me, Rich. So in in this paper, you were utilizing your Project Impact database, and you were looking at uh, all people who were admitted uh, for a a three-year period of time, with the focus then to look at the subgroup of patients with a BMI uh, greater than or equal to 40. And again, just for our listeners, uh, the categorization is is fairly standardized, although the terminology is is not uh, uniformly completely accepted yet. Overweight, a BMI greater than 25 kilograms uh, per meter squared, obesity greater than 30, and extreme morbid or severe obesity, uh, a BMI greater than 40. And then although some people say, as you know, a BMI greater than or equal to 35 with comorbidities, which was uh, one area that I know can often be confusing in this literature, right? Yes, that's correct. And and let's also not forget that bariatric surgeons refer to still another cohort known as greater than 50 kilograms per meter squared as being super obese. That's and, correct. And carrying with them the highest possible complication rate. And then in the focus of this paper was the overall cohort was about 1,300 patients. And at that point, you then decided to look to see if the cohort with a BMI greater than or equal to 40 uh, had any difference in mortality compared with everybody else. And then specifically focusing in on the elevated length of stay with an ICU greater than or equal to four days. And to sort of cut to the chase, you importantly found that in that specific subgroup, as I said before, with the elevated ICU length of stay and the elevated BMI, the ICU mortality increased from 12.3% up to 33% in the ICU mortality, and the hospital mortality went up from 16 to 33%. And then just to, to conclude, you followed that up with an important multivariate analysis, revealing an odds ratio of 7.4 for that pa- group of patients, mortality uh, compared with not, if you had a BMI greater than or equal to 40 and were in the ICU greater than or equal to four days. 
Is that sort of about as succinct as, as you can make that? No, I think that's that's very well done. Uh, uh, mortality uh, in the for all comers, uh, ICU mortality had increased from 5.7% uh, to 12.3% in the morbidly obese, but that was not statistically significant. Uh, but then when we when we looked at uh, the prolonged stay cohort uh, in the morbidly obese, we had uh, mortality rates, ICU mortality rates as high as 33%, so really quite high. And so just uh, for the listeners, the overview for this podcast really will be divided into sort of two major areas. One is the discussion of trying to find that signal of the correlation between BMI and mortality. And the second, which I think is equally important, some of the other topics that I know you're an expert on, are what are the specific challenges of caring for this subgroup of patients specifically in the ICU? And so what I begin with as a, as a discussion point is, in your discussion, you talk about uh, how this literature has not really been able to pinpoint this what I would have thought would have been an easy-to-prove point, that if you have an elevated BMI, that there is an increased number of comorbidities, and therefore, one would imagine, an increased mortality in the ICU. So maybe if you wanted to start out by talking about this interesting literature. Yeah, and, and that's a great uh, uh, start-off point, Rich. First of all, I think we all know, finally by now, in 2006, that obesity, and in particular extreme obesity, are risk factors for the general population, both in terms of quality of life and length of life. In the United States, for example, 65% or more of all adults are thought to be overweight. And actually, complications start in the overweight category, uh, which is disappointing for most of us, and since most of us are overweight as adults. Uh, and, and in the general population, about 5% of patients are thought to be, or adults are thought to be extremely obese. And we know that uh, life expectancy is shaved by some 7 to 14 years because of the presence of obesity. And that translates into an enormous economic cost and also just a decrease in the quality of life. And it's interesting, too, that whereas before the United States, always a leader, uh, was first in the world as it related to obesity, now the rest of the world has, has caught up. So, for example, in France, uh, child obesity is increasing by 17% per year. And recently it was identified that 2% of French people eat at McDonald's every day. Uh, and it's not just a French issue, of course. Uh, in New Delhi, in India, 76% of all women are abdominally obese. In fact, they have an interesting conundrum in India. Uh, approximately 50% of all Indians are now thought to be o overweight or obese and yet nearly half of all children under the age of five are malnourished. Uh, in China, China has seen obesity double in the last 10 years, and China, of course, is now the fastest-growing market for fast food. Um, so I think that, that uh, it's not just a U.S. problem, but it's a global problem, and therefore an international task force on obesity uh, now refers to this as globesity. And that being the case, uh, what do we know about obesity among hospitalized patients? Well, interestingly, two studies have been unable to demonstrate that in the general population of hospitalized patients that obesity confers a higher risk. And now we're beginning to look at the, this sub-cohort of patients in the intensive care unit. And uh, to my knowledge, there have now been, together with our study, altogether six studies looking at these patients in the ICU. And the early studies, beginning in 2001, 
in the first half of this decade were largely unable to demonstrate that there was a relationship. Uh, and I think this had to do both with, with the way these patients were studied and with the design of the studies. So, for example, the first study came out of Buffalo by El Sol, in which they looked at uh, a morbidly obese population, altogether 117 uh, medical ICU patients retrospectively. Uh, they looked at mortality in the morbidly obese versus those who were not at all obese. And they, they did document an increase both in complications and in mortality, but the study was poorly matched and the obese population actually had a higher severity of illness. So, of course, patients who are sicker have a higher likelihood of death and complications. And so that really was a, a good initial effort, but unfortunately was flawed by experimental design and poor matching. And then what I would have thought would have been a great study was a study by Tremblay, uh, published in 2003, in which they looked at the SECM's Project Impact database. So they retrospectively looked at 41,000 medical and surgical ICU patients as part of this national database, uh, and they they were unable to uh, identify any relationship between uh, body mass index or BMI with mortality and complications or length of stay in any sort of definitive way. Uh, and uh, interestingly, that study was undermined by the fact that because they looked at such a large cohort, the average length of stay was only two days. And so we reasoned that, gee, you know, why would we expect obesity itself, body habitus, why would we expect that to confer an increase in death and complications in the first 24 to 48 hours of uh, ICU stay? It would. It just seemed to us that based on experience, that it would take really a longer period of time for the burdens of caring for these patients uh, to actually confer a worse outcome. The burdens of trying to obtain vascular access, the burdens of trying to mobilize this population and overcome conditions like atelectasis and deconditioning, the burdens of getting imaging studies or the inability to image these patients when they become sick uh, because of their great size. And so that's why we designed our study really to, to zero in on long-stay patients. And we happen to pick four days as a length of stay because uh, that's the average length of stay in our surgical ICU. So really, our prolonged stay group is patients with a length of stay greater than four days. And there is where we really wanted to focus in on the morbidly obese versus those who are not, and then look at outcomes. Right. Um, so just thinking while you were talking now, it, it seems to me an interesting follow-up, and you're probably already doing this, would be to do your kind of analysis on the nationwide Project Impact database, right, to, to see if that signal is still there? That would be exactly right. That would be exactly the right thing to do. You have to select out long-stay patients and, and, uh, and then BMI, and uh, that would be the right thing to do. You have to actually get permission to access the database, and it goes before a committee, and then the committee decides whether it's a project worth pursuing or not. Well, it, it, um, I sort of had uh, two or three points, but I've learned on these podcasts I only ask one question at a time. <laughs> but just as a, as, a, as a question for you, I was just discussing this paper with my bariatric surgeons before I came on, on the show here, and, and, and the things they wanted to discuss with you are... are you know, to them, not every patient with a BMI greater than 40 is the same, and it depends on whether, for example, they have the comorbidities and or have those comorbidities been optimally medically managed before they come into the unit. And so I guess uh, that would be one question. Maybe if you want to talk about that for a second. Well, you know, we see tremendous variability. We have a bariatric program here, too, and some of our patients 
present to us after complications of bariatric surgery, but at least half the patients don't. We've seen uh, patients as much as 850 pounds. We've had two patients at 850 pounds. One month we had two patients at 700 pounds at the same time. And um, any patient who gets into, into extreme ranges, say over 400 pounds, uh, almost invariably have comorbidities that are not well managed. These patients uh, have tremendous physical and emotional uh, disabilities that are with them every day of their living life outside the hospital. Uh, they usually require a series of friends or family that really act as enablers to allow them to get as large as they do and still function in society. And, and almost by definition, they can't possibly get to a doctor or get to a doctor on a regular basis, take all the right medications and do all the right things. So once you begin to get into a larger size, um, it's much more likely that they have comorbidities that are uh, poorly managed. Now, when you talk about the bariatric surgeon, you're really already selecting out a, a very select group of patients. Right. These are patients who are motivated, have gone to seek surgical help. They're willing to undergo a knife and anesthesia. They're so desperate. And uh, good programs actually have a waiting list that may be 6 to 12 months out, which means that they have to go through a series of other maneuvers before they can even get to the point of an operation. They have to be in a support group. In our program, they actually have to demonstrate weight loss before they undergo surgery, right. which is a way of demonstrating compliance with the program. They undergo psychiatric counseling, nutritional counseling. It's a whole program. That's a very select group. Then the patient who at 700 pounds bounces into the, into the emergency department with shortness of breath. That's one of the questions I was going to ask you. I, I know you mentioned in your paper the different categories. W were they mostly bariatric surgical patients or not? No. no. The majority were not bariatric surgery. Okay. Um, the next, and, and just I'm as sorry. a follow-up in the paper, just as a way of, of bringing some reality to this, 26% of our patients uh, were obese and uh, approximately 7% were morbidly obese. That's just all comers to a surgical ICU. Right. Um, you know, I, I wanted to talk for a second about uh, Dr. Merrick's uh, editorial where he mentioned, he did some analysis of your data uh, pointing out that the overweight and obese groups actually had a decreased mortality, and it wasn't until you were in the uh, morbidly or severe obese group that you started to see the increase in mortality. And I was wondering if you could make some comments on this, and, and I guess other uh, authors may have seen similar things. You know, I think that that um, the point of the paper was to look at prolonged stay. So although we looked at, at 1,373 patients altogether over a course of three years and two months, it was only 400-plus patients who fell into the prolonged stay group. And then when you take all of the different uh, potential uh, weightings, which means a low BMI, meaning less than 18.5, a normal BMI of 18.5 to 24.9, uh, overweight from 25 to 29.99, uh, then obese, grade 1, 30 to 34.9, grade 2, 35 to 39.9, and then finally, greater than 40, you cut up long-stay patients over 400 into all these different groups, you really can't draw, I think, any dramatic... Very small, small groups, group. right. Now, I think that's really, really important, but again, as, uh, as you have pointed out, the signal, as you said, why should body habitus per se 
necessarily be associated with increased morbidity and mortality. Uh, on the other hand, there's lots and lots of data that, for example, these patients are at increased risk for developing severe sepsis syndrome, and then once they get it, it may be uh, are, uh, more difficult to treat. And, and I think that that's an important uh, uh, segue into what are the reasons that people die with this? Well, part of it is that I think there are burdens of caring for these patients. Uh, it, it's harder to get vascular access, get it in a timely fashion, particularly under emergent conditions. You can't image these patients. A CT scanner at our hospital, for example, has a limit of about 350 pounds. Also, let's say you're underweight, you're under that weight limit, but you still have to have the right circumference, too. If you're very short but very round, you still may not fit within the donut, and, and in which case you can't get a CT scan. Surgeons are loath to re-explore these patients for several reasons. First of all, if they don't have an imaging study, uh, then they're a little less inclined to go back to surgery. Secondly, patients who undergo, who are morbidly obese who undergo abdominal surgery are more prone to get fistulas, and, and surgeons know that and hate to do that. Uh, and, then, and then thirdly, one of the reasons that patients undergo surgical re-exploration of the abdomen is because they have abdominal findings, physical findings, like peritoneal signs, tenderness, uh, uh, rigidity, rebound. Well, guess what? The morbidly obese patient, the surface of the abdominal wall is oftentimes so thick and so far away from the source of injury that the abdominal exam in the morbidly obese oftentimes masks or blunts uh, the true findings. The, the exam muffles what's really going on. And again, surgeons become less inclined to take these patients back. There's a lot of reasons why I think they die. Then on top of all of that, I think that it's possible that over time we're going to find that this patient population is immunosuppressed and more prone to septic complications. We just haven't been able to completely prove it yet. But at least in one study, uh, there, there has been a demonstrated increase in a heterogeneous population of patients. Uh, both in pneumonia and in line infections if they were morbidly obese. Uh, I think we've done a pretty good job discussing the data from your paper, but I wanted to ask you sort of as a person and an expert in this field two sort of intuitive questions. Is, sure. Do you think that the BMI itself may, if you are a person with an elevated BMI, that you may be at risk for an elevated length of stay and sort of along those same lines, that if you have an elevated BMI that you're at risk just for comorbidities and that's what's causing this increase, uh, morbidity and mortality? Or maybe if you could just share your personal thoughts on interpreting some of the data. Yeah, boy, I think that's a, a really good question. Um, there are a number of problems associated with just obesity for example, if you are obese and therefore have an elevated BMI, the risk of sudden death uh, increases anywhere from 12 times to 40 times. And uh, there are a number of instances of patients who presented to a hospital that I know of uh, who were morbidly obese, and they were just suddenly found dead in bed one night out on the hospital wards, and nobody knows why. Well, the morbidly obese have an increased risk of sudden death and, and uh, ventricular irritability. Of course, patients with a really high BMI may also be more at risk for pulmonary complications. They may already have had uh, chronic, multiple, recurrent pulmonary emboli and already carry with them undiagnosed pulmonary hypertension. So obesity, hypoventilation syndrome, uh, obesity, cardiomyopathy, uh, those things apnea, like that. Sleep right. apnea, uh, cardiomyopathy, just as you point. So right away, the BMI puts them at risk. Uh, and then on top of that, I think that just the burdens related to caring for these patients also makes it harder and also sets them up for iatrogenic complications. 
Um, you know, we've talked uh, about a lot of issues here today, and I thought we might uh, sort of in the last few minutes of the interview, and I've, I've tried to read about this myself, but there's a lot of psychosocial, there are a lot of psychosocial issues here as well, this term obesity bias. And if, given your experience with this, if you'd like to spend a few minutes talking to the members of SCCM about ways to recognize some of these issues and perhaps ways of dealing with them. Interestingly, uh, the morbidly obese population will often exhibit, uh, they will often regress into childlike behavior. We've seen that after bariatric surgery, but also in general. Um, And of course, patients with sleep apnea, many of whom are obese, are often said to have personality disorders. Uh, They they will be feisty in order to get them to cooperate. I know of, of hospitals where psychiatrists who've been called in to deal with noncompliant, belligerent, obese patients have set up a reward system and allowed those patients to order pizza uh, from outside vendors and bring it to them to their hospital bed. So this is a very difficult population oftentimes to work with. Um, you know, they've had a whole lifetime of maybe being um, set apart from others and treated as such, and they've developed defense mechanisms that have helped them to cope with that that don't necessarily coincide very well with systems uh, that exist within a hospital setting. I think a primary nursing model would be really smart, meaning that you have one nurse or one or two nurses that know the patient and the family very well and day in and day out are the ones who take care of these patients. However, that system gets defeated oftentimes if they're very, very, very obese because it's almost unfair to ask any single nurse to take care of a 450-pounder day in and day out, because that means rolling them, uh, bed cleaning, uh, and so forth. One system you can do, though, is to set up uh, a team. You can have an infrastructure within the hospital. So, for example, a maintenance team, a team comprised of security, maintenance people, and others can help you roll a patient at certain times of the day. So they're they're asked to show up at 10 a.m. every morning or 3 p.m. every afternoon, and they can help with some of the nursing duties of doing the rolling. That also means that a really good hospital will invest in the equipment that allows... Right, that was what I was going to bring up. This can be a... If it's something that you don't do frequently, it can often be very difficult to get the right equipment at a moment's notice, right? I think that's exactly right, which is why all of these zillions of hospitals that are setting up bariatric programs, you know, they may bring in the surgeon, but and they may even have the OR equipment, but that doesn't mean that the whole hospital is now a center of excellence for caring for these patients. And, and I remember in another paper I read regarding this topic that it's important to be open uh, or sort of privately with the staff to make sure that you're recognizing if if, if nurses or, or, or workers are having trouble, uh, both physical or psychological, to make sure that it's discussed, which makes it much more difficult, uh, more easy to, to manage, right? I think, I think that uh, it has to be a team effort, uh, and that seems a little pedantic, but it's really true because... In our 10-bed surgical ICU, we have 43 nurses, and you definitely have to share uh, the burdens associated with caring with this special uh, population. Well, um, I, I just wanted to sort of resummarize again in conclusion uh, that we've been speaking today with Dr. Stanley Nazarway, MD, FCCM. He's the Director of Surgical Critical Care at Tufts New England Medical Center. We were discussing his uh, article published in Critical Care Medicine in April, focusing on the morbidly or severe obese, showing that if they're in the ICU greater than four days, they appear to have, and they have a BMI greater than or equal to 40, that they really do appear to have a elevated risk for death. And um, I'm really grateful that you've been able to be with us today. This is a very important topic. Thank you so much. Rich, thank you very much. And, and for all who've taken the time to listen, thank you. Uh, this is an important topic, and I appreciate very much your interest. Thanks so much.
Alrighty. This concludes our podcast for Monday, April 3rd, 2006. Look for future podcasts featuring a wide variety of information important to critical care practitioners, including interviews with authors and discussions with prominent members of the critical care community. If you have comments, questions, or ideas for future podcasts, please call the Society of Critical Care Medicine's audio feedback line at 1-847-493-6498 to share your thoughts. Critical Care Medicine is the official journal of the Society of Critical Care Medicine, offering the latest information about critical care to healthcare professionals. Members of the Society of Critical Care Medicine receive a free subscription as well as other benefits. For more information, visit www.sccm.org. Thanks again for listening. Stay up to date on advancements in the critical care profession by attending the Society of Critical Care Medicine's new educational series, Critical Care Academy, giving you tools to increase your critical care skills and knowledge. Critical Care Academy features the adult and pediatric multi-professional critical care review courses on July 18th through the 22nd, 2006. Prior to the review courses, take part in the new Clinical Strategies and Skills Simulation in Pediatric Critical Care or the expanded American Board of Internal Medicine Critical Care Self-Evaluation Process Module Review on July 16th through 17th to enhance your board review process. Tailor your learning experience to suit your specific needs at one convenient location, saving you time and money. Register today to guarantee your course selections by speaking with a SCCM Customer Service Representative at 1-847-827-6888 or visit www.sccm.org.